Our scripture reading for today is Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 to 31. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. Then I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. And then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery 
and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve, and in his voice, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we are thankful for this day, a day that we can bear witness together. And now in the hearing of your word, in the preaching of your word, be glorified. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. Last week, Pastor Ethan preached on the Decalogue, and despite his controversial statement regarding that place which shall not be named, we learned about the importance of living God-centered lives, and that these house rules that were given to us set up relational boundaries for us, for the family of God, in which the very name, our God, the God who is, who is for us, 
defines that relationship. Now, we might think that after the Decalogue, after all the miracles and all the rescues that they had experienced, that the people of Israel would be more than willing to follow God. But they don't. After the Decalogue, they will spend the next 38 years wandering through the wilderness until that entire generation of adults perish. All those who had witnessed the mighty works of God in Egypt are gone, and it will be their children and their grandchildren who will inherit the land. The book of Joshua tells about this next phase in the story of Israel of their military engagements and dealings with the people of the land in Canaan over a seven-year period. We're going to have to skip over all of the difficult theological questions raised by the themes of conquest and colonization, along with the memorable events, such as the Battle of Jericho, when the walls came tumbling down to the sound of trumpets, the Battle of Gibeon, in which we are told that the sun stood still, a day like, unlike any other, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. Instead, our reading takes us today to the very last chapter in the book of Joshua, after all the battles have been fought and the land has achieved a relative peace, and Joshua is nearing the end of his life, and he gathers the people in Shechem to offer his last words. Shechem is not a random place. You might recall from a few weeks ago that this was where God made his promise to Abraham. In Genesis 12, we read, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So Abram built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him at Shechem. Later, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, on his return journey back to his family, stopped along the way to recommit himself and his family to the Lord in that same spot. Genesis 35 tells us, so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And earlier in Joshua chapter 8, Joshua builds an altar to God, just as Moses had commanded him earlier in Deuteronomy 11. And all Israel, all Israel, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests and carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded on the first to bless the people of Israel. And it's the city of Shechem that sits between these two mountains, Gerizim and Ebal. It's a sacred spot. The city and this tree, this terebinth, this oak. The site itself is a reminder of their history with God. As any visit to our childhood home or even to a favorite restaurant will remind us, places have power to evoke memory and emotions. 
And so invoking the language of the prophets, Joshua begins with, thus says the Lord. And in verses 2 through 13, he retraces the story of God's dealing with his people from God's perspective. He goes all the way back to even before the story of Abraham. And then he selectively passes through the stories of Isaac and Jacob and Esau, of Moses and Aaron. And then he tells them about their more recent history, which you just heard, of their rescue through the sea from the Egyptians and their battles and victories in the land, in the wilderness, as well as in the promised land. Speaking for God and reviewing their history, Joshua impresses upon the people what God has done for them. Not what they have done, but what God has done for them. Notice all the eyes in this passage of what God has done. I took your father Abraham and led him and made him have many offsprings. I gave him Isaac. I gave Jacob and Esau. I gave Esau the hill country of Seir. I sent Moses and Aaron. I plagued Egypt. I brought your fathers out of Egypt. I brought you to the land of the Amorites. I gave them into your hands. I delivered you out of his hand. I sent the hornets ahead of you. And I gave you a land on which you had not labored. I counted more than 18 times that this I signifying God's activity appears. It's a long list of what God has done for them. And it's not an exhaustive list. God did far more than this selective list indicates. God did all of this for his people, not because they were deserving and faithful, but because God had made an earlier promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Joseph. And God keeps his promises. And Joshua reminds the people, this is who God is. And this is who we are because of who God is. God has been working for centuries to keep his promises for you. You are not here by accident. You are not here because of your military prowess or because of your piety. You are here because of God's power, of God's provisions, God's protection, God's presence. He is our God. So in light of all that God has done for, done for them, Joshua calls upon the people in verse 14, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Now, therefore, that's the key word of the gospel, therefore. Our decisions to follow God, to serve him, are always rooted in what God has already done first for us. Because of all this that God has done for us, now, therefore, you can make a decision to follow him. This is the order of the gospel. God acts on our behalf first, and then invites us to respond. God loved us first, therefore we love him. Therefore, Joshua says, choose whom you will serve this day. Choose whom you will serve this day. Now this word serve that gets repeated over and over and over in this chapter is a word that means to worship and to obey. And it gets translated that way in different places. Choose whom you will serve, worship, and obey 
this day. And the people enthusiastically respond, we also will serve, worship, and obey the Lord, for he is our God. Now at this point, we might expect Joshua to say, that's awesome. I'm really glad you guys have all decided to do that. Today, I think myself and most ministers would be ecstatic to get that kind of response from the congregation. In this country, the number of those who are committed to a life of faith continues to dwindle. And even among those who self-identify as committed Christians, there are largely only plain church. Participation in the weekly life of a church, whether in worship or in small groups or in prayer meetings or service to their communities, has become increasingly a matter of convenience rather than one of following through on commitments. For many, faith has become just another consumer transaction. People attend church to feel better about themselves or to interact with others or to meet some other needs or to hear a message about the seven keys to financial success. They are not there to serve, to worship, to obey God. So under such conditions, many may be tempted to lessen the level of commitment, to soften God's commands. And so we may be surprised to hear Joshua reject their words of commitment initially and say instead, you are not able to serve, worship, obey the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive you your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve, worship, obey, foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. It's not that Joshua is a skeptic or a downer. It's that he's been with his people his entire life. He knows their propensity for sin. He knows how easily they have been swayed from following God. He knows that it is easy to declare loyalty in a moment of emotional passion without thoughtfully weighing through all the consequences and sacrifices that those words will require. So he warns them, reminding them again it's who it is that they are committing themselves to serve and to worship and obey. That they are promising to serve, to worship, to obey a holy and jealous God, a God who will not have any other rivals. He is one who invites and yet at the same time warns by those who come near me, I will be regarded as holy. The call to serve, worship, and obey then and now is not to feel warm and fuzzy or something toward God, but it is to serve, worship, and obey in total faithfulness and obedience. And the people respond back to Joshua's warning a second time, confident that they can serve, worship, and obey the Lord. And once again, Joshua warns them of the seriousness 
of the commitment which they are undertaking. You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord. And the people respond once again, yes, we are witnesses. And so then Joshua says, then put away your false gods. And I think here we see why Joshua has been so reluctant to accept their words and keeps repeating his warning. After all that the people have experienced for generations, isn't it a little disappointing, even shocking, that they still have foreign idols and gods in their midst? You would think that after the crossing of the Red Sea, after all that they had witnessed, that they would at least have put away these foreign idols. They may no longer have the golden calf, but the people apparently continue to worship the foreign gods and idols that they picked up from Egypt in the wilderness and from their neighbors in the land of Canaan. And so Joshua warns them one last time, the Lord, serve him and him only. And the people says, yes, the Lord our God, we will serve and worship and obey. And his voice, we will serve, worship and obey. And so Joshua finally writes down the words of the covenant and he takes a large stone to set up as a witness against them. And Joshua says that this stone has heard all the words of the Lord. He has heard, the stone has heard all the words of the Lord. Not the people, the Lord. And the stone will act as a permanent reminder of that commitment and of the choice that they have made this day. Let me just make uh, a couple of reflections with you this morning regarding this renewal of covenant. First, I think the words of Joshua are instructive for us. In verse 15, he tells the Israelites that he and his family have made a choice. I know that verse 15 is a very popular verse. Some of you may even have a poster uh, with these words. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord in your homes. It's not a bad model to live by. Joshua declares that regardless of what the others do, he and his family have made a choice to serve, to worship, and to obey God. And remember that Joshua is making this declaration at the end of his life. This is someone who has been serving. It's not like he wasn't sure if he was going to serve God for the first hundred years of his life, and at the last moment he's going to decide to follow God. Rather, this is someone who has seen it all, he was born a slave in Egypt. He spent 40 years wandering in the desert with Moses. He spent seven years leading battles against the land of Canaan and has now, in the last decade or so, been settling down in the land and achieved some level of peace. He knows what it is to serve, to worship, and obey God. It is not something new for him. It is a renewal of commitment for himself and his family. And his words imply, I am choosing, as for me and my house, we will continue to serve, obey, and worship the Lord as we have been doing. And he makes this declaration for himself as well as for his own household. He takes the responsibility for his family. Now, I know that your personal faith cannot guarantee the faith or the faithfulness of your own family. 
But as parents, you have enormous, enormous influence and responsibility for the faith of your children and the rest of your household. At the most basic level, your kids can't come to church unless you drive them, right? I also encourage this morning, when one of the kids in the confirmation class couldn't be here for the rest of the service today because of a uh, birthday gift he received to a ball game today, but they came to attend the confirmation class and then left right afterwards. And they didn't have to do that, but they did that. You know, th that's a level of commitment that that's going to stick. They're going to remember that. More importantly, the people in your household, and particularly your children, they see how you live out your faith every single day. Without you saying a single word, without you preaching the gospel to them, they know, it's clear to them, how seriously you take your faith. You can't fake it. Not for 18 years. Without you saying a word, it's clear to them where God is in your priorities. They know whether faith is fundamental to who you are or whether it's just one more accessory in your life. And unless they see that it matters to you, that it's a matter of life and death, it's not going to stick and it won't matter to them. And it will become, at best, just one more activity in their overscheduled lives. Martin Luther King Jr. begins his autobiography with these words. Of course I was religious. I grew up in the church. My father is a preacher. My grandfather was a preacher. My great-grandfather was a preacher. My only brother is a preacher. My daddy's brother is a preacher. So I didn't have much choice. But of course, he did have a choice. He had a choice. Just because you grow up in the church, just because everyone in your family is a preacher, it doesn't mean that you don't have a choice. It's harder to make a different choice, but you have a choice. Many of you here today, you grew up in the church. Your parents took you to church. But that didn't mean that you had to keep coming back when you became an adult. Our high school students, once they go off to college, they will exercise that same choice. They can choose whether or not they're going to continue to pursue their faith in community or whether they're going to reject that faith. Of course, we hope and we pray that they will continue to serve God, but that's a choice that they will have to make. We are always given the freedom to choose. You and I have genuine freedom to choose. God always honors and protects that freedom. Choose whom you will serve this day. The other day I saw a trailer for the new Matrix movie and I was reminded of the iconic moment when Morpheus offers Neo the choice 
between the red pill and the blue pill. That small choice will determine the course of the rest of his life and the rest of humanity. Most choices, of course, that we make on a daily basis, like what to eat and what to wear, are, of course, generally inconsequential. But there are a few moments in our lives when a choice that we make can have lifelong consequences, such as whom we choose to marry or the job offer that we reject. But those kinds of choices, however, as important as they are, is not the end. It's not the goal. It's not a one-time choice to be made and forgotten. The decision to marry, for example, means that you are now choosing a particular way of life, a way of faithfulness to your partner. That one decision will impact every other decision you will make for the rest of your life. It's a one-time decision, but one that will be the foundation for how you make every other decision in your life. Serendipitously, we will participate and witness in such a moment today as we will be celebrating baptism. And coincidentally, his name also happens to be Joshua. And I remind you that in baptism, we declare publicly whom we will serve, worship, and obey. We choose in light of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ to follow him. In baptism, we make a forever life-altering choice. I choose this day whom I will serve. I declare my allegiance to God in Jesus Christ and to follow him and therefore reject all other gods. There is no decision more important in our lives. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money, he said. You cannot serve God and whatever else may be competing for your ultimate allegiance. Whatever else is seeking to be supreme in your life. In Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, for example, the Lilliputians conjecture that Gulliver's pocket watch is his god because, quote, he seldom did anything without consulting it. He called it his oracle and said it pointed out the time for every action of his life. What was once satire is now prophetic. The Lilliputians today would rightly accuse us of worshiping our smartphones as our God. We seldom do anything without consulting it first. The truth is that we all serve a God. Whatever we choose as our highest good, that is our God. Whatever without which our lives cannot be, that is our God. Whatever brings you that ultimate meaning and joy, that is God. In Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul wrote, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and 
covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry because it is worship of a false god. What is it that you covet? That is, what is it that you really, really want? Whether it's power or money, respectability, reputation, education, personal comforts, whatever that may be, whatever it is that you covet, desire above all else, that is your God, that is your idol. It's not really a question of whether or not to serve God, but recognizing that we all serve God's it's a choice of making an intentional decision to serve the God that is revealed to us in the scriptures and made known to us in Jesus Christ. Choose this day whom you will serve, worship, and obey. I think the case that Joshua is making here is that they have this incredible history. They have been witnesses and the recipients of this incredible history of what God has done for them. So why would you not serve this God and serve other gods? And I think that's the same case that we have to make to one another, to our families. We have to remind each other of God's story, of how God loves us, of how God sent his only son for us to save us. And we also have to tell the story beyond the scriptures, how God continues to save us, to continue to provide for us, to continue to heal and to answer our prayers. God didn't just intervene in the lives of the ancient peoples. God continues to work in our lives today. We have to remind each other. Therefore, choose whom you will serve, worship, and obey. You know, it's, a, it's an ongoing joke in my family now that I will make some cultural reference that my kids have no idea what I'm talking about. And they'll just stare blankly at me and they'll give me this like, here we go again. This week, it was the rice jingle. And I looked at them, you don't, you don't know what that is? And they looked back at me like, How, why would we know what that is? And they don't even have to say anything. I just, that look, I know exactly what they're thinking. Yesterday I was with, a, with, the, with an FG uh, at an outdoor lunch, and there were clusters of people having their own separate conversations. And one of our young adults started to uh, say something to me. And as she continued to speak, all of the other groups all around just stopped talking to listen in on what she was saying to me. And she stopped for a moment as she realized everyone went quiet. And then I made the remark, hey, you're like E.F. Hunton, to which I got no response, just like I got no response a moment ago. And someone had the point out to me that, of course, she doesn't know what that reference is. Why would she? Why would anyone under the age of 40 or maybe 50 know what that is? It's easy to forget. It's easy to forget that they might not know what I know. Our children and the people around us, they may not know or remember 
or have forgotten what God did for Abraham and for Moses, for Joshua, for you and for me. We need to remind each other again and again what God did for his people in the scriptures as well as in our own lives. This is one of the reasons we gather for worship every week. In worship, we remind each other of the promises that God has made to us and has kept and has fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We can so easily forget what God has done. I know I need reminders. I know my family needs reminders to hear it again and again. So it's vitally important for us to make a decision, therefore, based on what God has done for us. But I think there is something even more important for us to remember, and that is this. As you heard, the people enthusiastically and repeatedly chose to serve, to worship, and to obey God. I don't doubt their sincerity in that moment. I don't doubt their intentionality in that moment. But I also know that decisions that are made even with the utmost sincerity, even with the best of intentions, are also prone to failure. We are all guilty of having broken promises, small and big, made with the best of intentions. And spoiler alert, after the death of Joshua and the elders of his generation, the people of Israel will break this promise again and again and again and again. They will go back to worshiping false gods and idols. So the covenant that we make, the covenant that we renew this day, are a reminder, foremost of all, that our hope does not lie in our convictions, does not lie in the strength of our decision-making, does not lie in the power of our own faithfulness. It rests on the unchanging faithfulness of God. That's the renewal of the covenant. That is our only hope. It is not we who will keep faith. It is God who will keep faith with us. The future of God's people in the land does not depend ultimately on the people's obedience, but in God's faithfulness, in God's mercy. Israel will suffer the consequences of abandoning God. But in the end, God himself will find a way bring, to bring salvation to his people, not because of what the people do or fail to do, but because of who God is, because God has promised and God keeps his promises. That's the good news. God will keep faith. God has always kept faith. And that's the story that we have to tell again and again and again. Remind each other what God has done for you. And therefore, choose this day whom you will serve 
worship, and obey. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder this day of hearing your word once again, of what you have done for your people, and of what you continue to do for us. Help us to remember and to recommit ourselves to serving, worship, and obeying you and you only. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.